Uh, well, you can turn to, to John chapter 1 if you haven't already. Again, verses 4 to 8 uh, will be our focus, um, and we'll, we'll set the context in this way. So, uh, from the earliest age, we seem to be well aware of the uh, unwelcome presence of darkness. Uh, if, you, if you bring up the word darkness to a young child, their mind probably immediately goes to the idea of nighttime, uh, when the lights are out, and, and it's time to go to bed, but the darkness makes them afraid. Uh, darkness is scary. We dread darkness when we're young. Uh, then as we get older, uh, we may become a little more refined in our concerns, but the dread of darkness doesn't really go away. It, it may not be a, a literal lack of light in our bedroom that, that bothers us, uh, but the language of darkness, that still points to disturbing realities that we're, that we're well aware of. Uh, so, for example, a couple weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, a columnist by the name of Julie Jargon, she, uh, she wrote an article entitled, TikTok Feeds Teens a Diet of Darkness. TikTok Feeds Teens a Diet of Darkness. And then the subtitle to the article was, Self-Harm, Sad Posting, and Disordered Eating Views Abound on the Popular App. So a diet of darkness. All right, darkness reflects the things that bring destruction and dread, elements that promote all things that are, that are not life-giving and empty, we understand to be reflected in that metaphorical kind of language, the darkness that's around us. Uh, Dylan, he masterfully picks up on these same kinds of things in his lyrics, actually in a number of his, uh, a number of his songs, but in one particular song, he's, he's writing about at least one of the verses about his broken heart in a relationship, and he says this, he says, well, my sense of humanity has gone down the drain. It's the beginning of a good breakup lyric, isn't it? My sense of humanity has gone down the drain. Behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. She wrote me a letter, and she wrote it so kind, she put down in writing what was in her mind. And then he says, I just don't see why I should even care. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. We can identify with that. However, the metaphor strikes us, darkness points to realities that deeply disturb us, Re realities that are contrary to joy, realities that are contrary to life, realities that are contrary to all the things that we would otherwise be lifted up by. Darkness represents the shadowy stuff that brings us down. And, and as, as, as we come into, into John's gospel, as we study this gospel, it's this notion of darkness that the, that the gospel writer John speaks to uh, in our verses this morning as he continues to introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, John, as we know, is concerned to have us believe that Jesus is the Son, uh, the Son of God, the Anointed One, in whom eternal life can be found. That's John's priority. And as John continues in this introduction for us to Jesus, uh, he speaks of Jesus as this eternal Word, as the eternal revelation of God. He speaks of Jesus in terms now of life and light that ultimately overcomes the darkness. And in saying that, we, we feel our own need for that kind of light, don't we? Darkness is around us. We're very well aware of this. We read the news outlets. We, we listen to the songs. We observe the lives of others. We feel the weight of, of those shadowy burdens and demands that can be present in our own heart and life. And we need the light of life. We feel our need for that. John acknowledges that, that we live in this world of darkness. That's one thing that's actually going to be fairly prevalent in John's gospel as we continue to study our way through. Because for John in his writing, we'll see 
see darkness metaphorically describes something deep and ominous. Uh, darkness is ultimately a figure for evil as he, as he presents this gospel to us in, our, in the sphere of our world. It's this rebellion against God that hasn't led to the life we thought might take place, this life where we can be in charge of ourselves and everything is going to go just the way we'd like it to go. No, instead our rebellion has left us in this, in this dark place. And of course, for John, as he picks up on this theme, uh, he's not uh, the originator of it. Uh, John would well affirm uh, what we've, what we've uh, even used in terms of the wording from our confession this morning, from the prophet Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah uh, can speak about the world we live in, where the world uh, calls good evil and evil good, a world where humanity is convinced that our wisdom is truly clever, while instead we're actually spiraling in our lostness and in our, in our sorrow. John would affirm all these things and he picks up on this theme of darkness that, that we have in, in writers like Isaiah that depicts the world and the condition that it's in and its rebellion against God. And as John speaks about this, while he's, he's very honest about the reality that, that, that darkness reflects in the world around us, at the same time, John's gospel makes it very clear that darkness, while it's present, it is not ultimately uh, the destruction that it seems to be. Ultimately, John brings us this gospel truth sourced in the fact that we can know the one who overcomes the darkness. That while this darkness may be prevalent, this darkness may be destructive, ultimately, the one who has the light of life in himself and whose glorious purpose it is to come and be our rescuer, he's the one who's coming into the world, the Lord Jesus, who brings the life that we need. And of course, this encouragement then, it, it, is, it is a word we need in our own day. We, we need the one who will enter the gloom of our world and bring the light of life. Uh, so Ambrose of Milan, who was a, a theologian of the 4th century, uh, he prayed this prayer. Just listen to the kind of language he used. This is, this is his prayer. He said, Lord Jesus Christ, you are for me medicine when I'm sick. You're my strength when I need. You are life itself when I fear death. You are the way when I long for heaven. You are light when all is dark. And as we come again to this introduction to Jesus by the Apostle John, this, this is the one whom we meet, the one who is our light when all is dark. And as we get into this study, we can be refreshed by the truth that's here this morning because we come in with the weight of darkness upon us. We feel that. Uh, whether it's evils done to us, whether it's uh, evils that, that plague our consciences in terms of things we've done ourselves, these kinds of things weigh on us. We read, we read the news, uh, we see the kinds of things that are going on, we walk around even the, the neighborhood we live in and we see the sorrows that are depicted and that we feel the weight of darkness around us. And we come into this truth uh, to be encouraged that that is not ultimately the final word to us. And so, and so we'll, we'll begin in our studies. We're actually going to take verses 4 to 8 in, in three sections. And we're going to speak to the fact that in Christ we have light that is, that is comprehensively illuminating. We're going to start there in verse 4. The light of Christ is comprehensively illuminating. We'll begin there. Then we'll talk about how the light that, that, that is Christ's life is savingly superior. So that'll be verse 5. And then we'll finish in verses 6 to 8 by speaking about how this light that is Christ's life for us is exclusively located. So those will be our, our three headings for today. Again, beginning in verse 4 where we're going to see that, that Christ's light is comprehensively illuminating. Uh, so if you just look at verse 4, it reads that, that in, him, uh, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. 
Of course, there John is referring to the, the Logos, the Word, which is his way of introducing Jesus as the revelation of God in, in Christ was life and the life was the light of men. Uh, we could translate that a little more broadly. The life was the light of humanity. That's the word anthropos there in Greek. So it's the basic word, uh, Greek word for all of humanity. The life was the light of humanity. Um, now in reading good, uh, verse 4, it's good to remember how John has been speaking about Christ up to this point. Uh, so after the threefold description of Jesus as the Word in chapter 1, which we, which we spent some good time on, uh, John has then focused on how Christ is the, is the pre-existent one. Remember how he states he was in the beginning with God. So verse 2 restates the eternality of Jesus. But then as John moves into verse 3, he's been speaking to us about the creative agency of Christ. How all things came into being through him, and not one thing has been made that's been made apart from him. So he's been emphasizing Jesus as the creative agent, uh, bringing about all that exists. John's focused on that. And so as we begin verse 4, it naturally follows what's just been said, where John picks up now on, on, on the emphasis that he's already made, and that, and that all life is sourced in the eternal word, all life is sourced in the Son of God, and, and so it, it belongs to him, life is intrinsic to Christ, which is what he's telling us here, and, and not just that, but life's bestowed upon humanity by Christ. And so, and so that's where, where verse, <clears throat> verse 4 begins for us, when in Him was life, and that life was the light of humanity. And so all that, all that lives and exists, exists through the life-giving agency of Christ. Again, and we talked about that at length uh, last Sunday. But now, in, in a more particular way, John is emphasizing that life as it comes to us as people, so our, our human existence, is, is universally sourced in Jesus. And John makes that point by saying in verse 4 that the life that's intrinsic to Christ, we talked about that, how, how Jesus is, is non-contingent in, in that sense. We're created dependent beings. Jesus is independent. He's eternal. Uh, Christ uh, is the one who stands outside of all space and time. John's been speaking about that. Uh, but, but he's telling us now that that, that life that's, that's sourced in Jesus is, is the life that becomes our light of life. Uh, so, so the life that's intrinsic to Christ is the light of humanity. Um, and actually, as, as, as it's written here in our English Bibles, it almost sounds like there's a past tense form to that. So, so that light was the light, as if it, it was the light at one point of humanity, and now it's not any longer uh, we can think that just as a, at a base reading here of the text, uh, but it's, it's helpful to know if, you, if you're interested in these things that it is an imperfect verb there. Uh, so what that means for us is that John is speaking to an action that's sourced in Christ, but there's been no assessment of completion, which speaks to even what we talked about last week, how Jesus not only is, is the creative agent in creation, uh, but, but there's also language there that helps us understand he's the ongoing sustainer of the world as it continues now. And so Christ was the light of men, but it's not a was full stop. It's a continual light uh, that is being, being pictured there. He was and still is uh, the light of humanity. Uh, so there's this ongoing comprehensiveness to what John is telling us. Um, and he'll actually mention this again down in verse 9 when he says that Jesus, the true light, who gives light uh, to everyone. So there's a comprehensive idea there with this light theme. Um, and so as verse 4 puts things here, there's this, this creation connection between Christ and, and the life, we could put it this way, the life uh, with which he lights us all up 
as humans. Uh, that, that's who, who Christ is for humanity. And we think back to the Genesis creation account, and, and we have a framework for this. We see where John is getting this idea, and that in Genesis 1, that we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the, the earth was formless and void. If you remember, there, there's, a, there's that rhyme in Hebrew there uh, that I really like, tohu vavohu, that's formless and void. But that Hebrew rhyme, it sounds chaotic, doesn't it? Tohu vavohu, it sounds chaotic. So there's this, there's this uh, chaotic darkness that's there. Darkness was over the face of the waters. And what happens first in the creation account? Well, God said, let there be light. So, so light comes into the darkness and life then exists in the created order as things, as things follow. And just as God spoke and lit up the world at the beginning of creation, pointing things towards life in Genesis 1, here's Christ, who is, is the Word, <coughs> excuse me, as John has introduced Him. Christ is shown to be the revealed source of the life that then lights up humanity. Um, here, here's Christ's creative and sustaining work again. He moves things from, from the void and emptiness of pre-creation darkness to the present reality of, of ongoing human existence. And so, and so this is a truth that's central to our understanding of who Jesus is. We're, we're lit up as humanity by the life that comes from Christ. Light and life are bound together in the creative power of Christ. In fact, as we read John's gospel, we'll see that, that really light and life are inseparable. They, 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 they function as figures pointing to, to unique things, but really they're synonyms in John's gospel. Light and life are sourced in Christ. These are the things uh, that bring us to the point of, of acknowledging uh, Christ as creator, Christ as, as giver and sustainer, all of this. In fact, it, it, it points to what Paul makes clear in Acts 17 when he's speaking to people who really have no notion of, of, of the true God. They've got some idols set up, but they don't know the true God. And he says to them, in Him, so in the true God, we actually live and move and have our being. Now, that's the light of Christ in all, in all humanity. Um, so D.A. Carson, he makes the comment that, that the self-existing life of the Word was so dispensed at creation that it became the light of the human race. And, and we see that light around us in all kinds of different ways. Uh, there, there's the light of knowledge. Right? We see this in, in, in the scientists where there may be uh, no, no real acknowledgement of God even, but, but a shining curiosity is present and extraordinary discoveries about the world are made. That's the, that's the light of Christ in humanity, that scientific pursuit of knowledge. Right? We have this, this in expressions of morality. You know, you think of that marriage that you've seen where the husband and wife, they may not be believers in Christ, but, but they've committed to one another over decades in deeply giving ways. Right? That's, the, that's the light of Christ in humanity. Right? We see this in expressions of, of just general awe and, and creative splendor and appreciation. We think of the artist who may not acknowledge God, but there's an overwhelming and, and stimulating appreciation for, for lines and colors and shapes that come together to forge extraordinary beauty. That's, that's the light of Christ in humanity. All of these kinds of things. We, we see that, that light in expressions of basic concern for others. There's that great quote in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice where the comment is made, how far that little candle throws his beams, so shines a good deed in a weary world. And a good deed in a weary world, that's, that's something of the light of Christ in humanity. So, so in him was life, and that life was the light of men. However, while there are expressions of that light, even still, we are not as whole or as bright as we ought to be. 
And we also understand that truth. Humanity may display something of the light of Christ. We can think of, we can think of Christ's light as it's reflected in the flickering image of God still in us. But that life, it's not, it's not victorious life. It's present, but it's not abundant life. It's life, but it's, but it's broken life so often in the world as it is now. Take, take for example, I was reading this recently, so, uh, so I, I, I chose it. But take, take Charles Darwin's life as an example of this. You know, by so many accounts, such an absolutely brilliant mind, a brilliant mind. In November of 1880, Darwin received a letter from a minister by the name of Francis McDermott. And in the letter, the minister asked Darwin this question, um, realizing that Darwin kind of moved from this posture of initial faith. He moved over, over the course of his life. So the minister writes and he asks this question. He says, my reason for writing to you is to ask you to give me a yes or no to the question, do you believe in the New Testament? Of course, that was the substance of the letter. To which Dar Darwin responded, it's actually recorded that he responded the moment he got the letter. He turned around and wrote his response, and it was this. Dear sir, I'm sorry to have to inform you that I do not believe in the Bible as a divine revelation and therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That was his response. Fast forward to the end of Darwin's life and listen to his final condition. From his biography, we read this. He lost his taste for life. As Darwin grew older, he admitted that he could no longer get anything out of poetry, music, or art. Life lost its flavor, and he lived out his days in a world without wonder and joy. Brilliant mind ends his life without any wonder and joy. What a sorrowful picture. And then and another person states, commenting on, on Darwin's life, for Darwin at the end of it all, sadness was his guide and darkness was his light. So, so, so while the light of Christ was present in a mind like Darwin's, with, with all its abilities, in the fallenness and rebellion of our human condition, life is far from whole. And we, and we see this all around us. For, for, for all the light, for all the desire that is there in humanity for knowledge, and for all the desire that's there in humanity for morality and, and wonder and compassion for it all, people in our streets are dying, aren't they? Children are homeless, right? We seek after knowledge, but it only seems to corrupt our morals further. Darkness abounds. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the light of Christ isn't enough? Right? Does it mean that all is lost? Right? Of course, we know the answer to that is no. All is not lost, and the light of Christ is actually enough. Right? And we see this as John moves from speaking about the comprehensive illumination of humanity that comes through Jesus. John now moves in verse 5 to speak about the light of Christ ultimately as savingly superior, as we recognize how John is going to use the metaphorical language here. The light of Christ is savingly superior. So this is verse 5. If you, if you look at verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. Okay, so now as, as John keeps moving in his, in his redemptive flow here, we can get a sense that he's getting more particular in the kinds of things he's speaking about. We're, we're getting this idea that, that moves beyond mere creation now to this notion of conflict. Right? There's tension in the created order between the life of Christ, which is the light of humanity, and the darkness that's present. 
Uh, darkness, as we've said, is a term that reflects dread, it reflects fear, it reflects badness in the world. It's interesting, in the Genesis account of creation, darkness is more or less morally neutral, isn't it? It's just the absence of light, it's a void that God speaks into and fills and then life can come. But as things go on, especially as we think about how John uses the term and other biblical writers, darkness is used metaphorically to, to figuratively describe something far from morally neutral. And in John, and again, you read throughout the Scriptures, darkness represents the, the evil environment of the world opposed to God's good way. That, that's what darkness figures. Right? So, so in John chapter 3, for example, lost in our sin, we're told we love the darkness instead of the light. Well, why is that? Why is that? Because our works are evil. So we love the darkness instead of the light. Or in John 12, darkness overtakes us, so we don't know where we're going. Right? There's confusion, disorientation. Right? In John's first letter, which Jason preached for us some time back, in John's first letter, he speaks about darkness being associated with our hatred for others, our deceit, our lying. Right? It's, it's a picture of rebellion and the, and the sphere of, of human destruction and sin and our actions that go along with that. Uh, so much so that Paul can actually speak about humanity lost in our sin belonging to the domain of darkness in Colossians 1. The domain of darkness. So says one scholar, he says, darkness ultimately reflects the fallen sinful world dominated by Satan. This is, this is, this is darkness. Uh, this is the darkness that tangles our world up, our own hearts even to this day. And yet in verse 5 we read that darkness didn't overcome the light. All right? now, now there's a bit of a question here as to the translation of overcome. So, so the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There's, there's a Greek word there that just means to take hold of something. That, that's the word that's used. And I mention this just because if you have an NIV translation, actually I think the King James does this as well, it translates it something like the darkness did not comprehend the light. Right, I'm reading from the CSB. If you have the ESV, it says the darkness did not overcome the light. Other translations will say comprehend. So, so the translation there reflects the idea of taking hold of something, but taking hold of it cognitively. That's how the translators have, have interpreted that. That's why the NIV reads that way. Uh, the darkness didn't understand the light, uh, which of course is, is true. It's absolutely true. Uh, the darkness won't comprehend the light. John will tell us a few verses down that, that people didn't recognize Jesus for who he is. They didn't receive him. Uh, so certainly there's a, there's a lack of comprehension element present here. But probably our translation in the CSB or ESV is a little is a little more accurate in that the darkness didn't overtake the light, right? Darkness didn't get victory over the light, uh, and that's more accurate, no doubt, because it picks up on this light and darkness theme that will be all throughout John, and then the way Jesus is particularly described as speaking about it in places like John 12, where he says, "Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you." Same word that's here. There's this overtaking. Uh, trying to get victory over you element that's, that's present in the, in the language. So it's not so much understanding, although that could be present too, but, but there's an opposition kind of thing going on. And that's what John seems to be bringing up. The light comes into the darkness, and what do we think after we read about the light of Christ in all humanity? We think that's a glorious truth, that's an amazing thing, but we look around and we think maybe, it's being, maybe it is being overcome. It doesn't seem to be winning as I look, as I look at the, the streets when I'm walking to the store and see people there and all the sorrow and pain that they're facing. It doesn't seem like the light is winning. So we have this question, did, did, the, did the light get overcome? Right? 
But of course, what John is going to show us is, is that this universal light that comes to enliven humanity, there is this particular element of the light of Christ's life that's set against the darkness in battle. There's conflict, but the light of Christ is victorious. It points to ultimately a redemptive notion, a recreation notion of Christ's life and light. So, so he appears, he enters into a world of darkness where evil deeds are approved and the Lord is rejected. The, the, the Lord Christ enters into the darkness, not just with creative power, but we need to see this as, as, as a recreative, redemptive, victorious, salvation kind of illumination as well, which is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said would happen. And in Isaiah chapter 9, you know, the prophet is looking forward to the coming of, of the Messiah and the Lord uh, speaking to that time. He says through Isaiah, the people walking in darkness, uh, you know this passage, have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. That's what it will be like when, when the Messiah comes. To which Jesus shows up on the scene in John 8. And what does he say? He says, that's me. I'm the light of the world. And so this light isn't just illuminating. But it's ultimately victoriously saving. Jesus came to give us his life. As the one who is the true light. He came to give us his life. So that we could have life eternal. Remember how, how in John we can't really separate light and life. Those two things are going together. So, so we're told for example in John 6.51. Jesus says that he gave his flesh for the world. Right? He gave up his body on the cross to pay our debt of sin. And bring the light of life to us in a renewed, recreated, transformed, redeemed kind of way. Right? He came, John 10.10, so that we could have life and life abundant. He's not speaking there about getting everything we want and having all our desires fulfilled according to our own whatever private selfish ambitions those may be. No, he's speaking about a life that ultimately is not conquerable by death, which he says later in John 10, 28, when he says he gives his life, so what? His people perish no more. The darkness of death can't win for you if you have Jesus. His light is overcoming that kind of darkness. It's, it's not just illumination in all humanity, but it's salvation for those who will come and believe in Him. It's superior in this way, and it wins. So the life of Christ, the light of the world, it defeats the darkness. It's more than creation light. It's ultimately redemption and recreation light. Of course, the cross itself was the highest, highest attempt of the evil one and evil people to reject the light, wasn't it? Uh, but, but it's through that very attempt that the life eternal uh, was purchased for us by Jesus. He paid the penalty we deserve for our love of darkness instead of light at the cross and, and brings us to the assurance of new life. So much so, uh, that, and, and this is an emphasis in John's gospel, so much so that, that this life comes to us in such a way that Jesus will speak about his people who believe in him as if they're already resurrected in John's gospel, which is really an amazing thing. So he'll say things like in John 5, 24, uh, which, which John Frame, if you know that theologian's name, he says is, is just as good as John 3.16. John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Okay, so we, we know that. But then Jesus makes this comment. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you hear that kind of language? To believe in Jesus now is to already have moved beyond the reach of death's darkness as far as Jesus is concerned when he speaks about it. Right? That, that's how sure things are that darkness doesn't win. That's how victorious the light of Christ has been over the darkness. You have already passed from death to life if you're believing in me, Jesus says. 
You see, you see, the light that comes into the world doesn't just illuminate humanity. This light, of, this light of Christ ultimately is salvation, redemption, rescuing, transformative hope for humanity. It's like the light that shines from the, from the search and rescue team in the darkness of Mount Hood when the hiker's fallen and the, the search team goes out, they keep going into the night and they locate that person. They restore them to a place of safety. It's that, it's that darkness-defying kind of beam of light that brings things back from the brink of death. Jesus shines in the gloom of the dark day on Calvary. His light of life shines as he cries out when it's dark over the cross and says it is finished. He's gaining for us the light of life that never perishes. So darkness doesn't have the final word. It won't have the final word. And even now, while it's still around us, while we feel ourselves living in the sphere of darkness in so many ways, whether it's the, it's the temptations to sin that we can face personally or, or the many dark expressions of rebellion against God in the world around us, that the day will come when the full assurance of darkness's defeat that we have now, the day will come when that is eternally realized. And we need to remember and remind ourselves of that truth. So Isaiah 60, for example, uh, we, we read, Arise and shine, for your light has come. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It's pointing towards what's going to be the case when Jesus returns and there's a new creation. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness upon the people. But the Lord will arise upon you and His glory shall be seen upon you. All nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. It seems dark now, but, but the darkness isn't the final word. In Christ, you look forward to the brightness of your rising full stop because of what He's done. It's saving superiority of the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness. It shines in the darkness and wins. And, and we know this for the future. We look forward to that. We rest in that. We hope in that. But we also know this in part now because to, to a certain degree, we have experienced this renewed light of Christ in us as we've come to Christ. We know something of this now. Who would I be otherwise were I not in Christ? Right? Who? who who I would otherwise be, I, I, I'm not, because Christ's saving life has come into the darkness of my own heart. In fact, I make the comment from, to Julia from time to time, whatever it is going on, I, I notice something, I think, boy, that would, that would be unconverted, Jared. Like, you see these dark things going on, you realize the temptations of your own heart, and I think to myself, we're not for Christ in me. I, I see, that is me. I see myself there. That's where I would be. Who would you be? Who would you be were it not for the light of Christ in your heart? It's transformative for us right now. And you can think about your own life and see how his darkness-defeating light is already shining in you. It's transformative. So the story is told of the evangelist Harry Ironside. He ministered in the early 1900s. But he was preaching at one point in a public square in San Francisco and in the midst of it, a famous atheist came to him and challenged him to a debate. It was going to be agnosticism versus Christianity. So the debate was, you can't really know if there's a God versus Christianity. Right? No proof there's a God versus Christianity. And Ironside responded to the challenge uh, by saying that he would gladly debate this, this renowned atheist on one condition. And here's the condition. The atheist had to bring with him at least two people who've been delivered by destructive habits by their agnosticism. Two people. Ironside, for his part, would bring with him at least 100 people who had been transformed from their destructive habits by the light of Christ. That, that was his deal. You only have to bring two. I promise I'll bring 100. If we do that, we can meet and we can debate. 
and, and of course, given the terms of the deal, the atheist walked away. Right? Because what's true of Christ is he is the light, and in his light alone, new creation comes, and it's evident. Apart from Christ, we don't have that transformative power. We can put band-aids on things, but we just don't have that. There's no transformative power. And we need to remind ourselves of that, of that continually. The light of Christ shining in you to bring you along in what it means to be fully restored humanity. So much so that Jesus is willing to speak of you as already resurrected. You're already done with death. Death already doesn't, doesn't have any kind of claim on you. You might as well think of yourself as already have passed through it. That's the kind of newness that is being applied to you right now. And so we can, we can ask ourselves things like, in what ways do I look more like the, the, the me Jesus is remaking me to be now than I did five years ago? Just reflect on that question. How is Christ working in my heart in such a way to bring me along in the renewed reality of who I'm going to be because of his transformative light? How, what difference has that made over these last five years? Right? And that's an important kind of question to ask. Because it's evidence, there will be all kinds of evidences of Christ's light in me. Which, of course, will one day manifest in eternal glory of a resurrected and completely perfect you for all creation. Because Christ is that saving light for us. And, and in this, we, we need to see, see something that's here, which is what Ironside was picking up on. We need to see something here about the exclusivity that's represented and, and we close with this. But, but, but we've said something about Jesus' light as being comprehensively illuminating. And it's savingly superior. It will overcome the darkness. There's that renewal, recreation, transforming power that Christ brings. Ultimately because of what he's done at the cross. Uh, but then there's also uh, a reality in that the light of Christ is exclusively located in Christ. And, and we just need to be able to say that. Um, Christ transforms everyone who yields to him, but exclusively, only Jesus offers this kind of salvation life from the dominion of darkness, which is really a big part of what John is getting at next in our verses when he speaks about John the Baptist. So verses 6 to 8, it seems kind of abrupt, where we have this quick switch from, from the eternal divine logos. I mean, these massive concepts that John the Apostle has been speaking about. And all of a sudden, we're reading things about there was a man sent from God whose name was John. What is, what is this? It's kind of out of the blue. It seems awkward. It's an abrupt addition, it seems like at first. Um, so what's going on here? Well, John the Apostle, our gospel writer, uh, he'll, he'll talk more about John the Baptist later on, but he does insert this truth about John purposefully here. And, and, he, and he inserts information about John with the Baptist, with utmost respect. So, so it's made really clear that John the Baptist holds a special position, even in this brief description of John the Baptist. So he's sent from God. He's, he's the witness to the light that all might believe through him. Another set of sevens, which is that whole and perfect number in John's gospel. There are seven witnesses to Christ in the gospel. John is the first one that we're, that we're told about. So we get a high view of John on the one hand. He's an extremely honorable man on a mission from God. Many will come to trust Jesus through John the Baptist's ministry. But in all this, let's be clear, John our author says, he was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. You see the exclu exclusivity that John is highlighting there? In fact, just, just notice this. Back in verse 3, the verb made, to make, is, is repeated three times. So verse 3, if you look at it, literally we would, re we would read, all things were made through Christ. 
preexistent, eternal word. All things were made through him. Uh, and apart from him, not one thing was made that's been made. Uh, now, just as verse 3 repeats the verb made three times, pointing to Christ's eternal creative agency. You know, he stands apart and, and above all of this. Here, John the Baptist is described by the same verb, except rather than the maker, he is the made. Right? Uh, verse 7 reads literally, he was made as a witness to witness about the light. John was made. Jesus makes. John was made. He, he was not the light, but was made as a witness about the light. So, so John the Apostle is making sure to draw very clear lines of distinction. The light is exclusively Jesus. And, and we know uh, from, from, from places like Luke 3 that this is, an important, this is an important distinction to make. Actually, even later on into third century writings, there is a temptation to wonder if John the Baptist was the Messiah. We see evidence of this in different ways throughout, whether it's Scripture or extra-biblical writings. And, and John is clearing that up for us right here. John the ba- and as, as will John the Baptist when he gets a chance to speak. Clearing it up, I'm not the Christ. I'm pointing to the Christ, I'm not the Christ, right? John the Baptist, he's not the light. Witnesses to the light. But he's the maid, he's not the maker. Right? And, and while that's uniquely applied to John the Baptist here, we need to remind ourselves of the exclusivity that this points to just in general. John's pointing to an immediate matter of clarification using John the Baptist purposefully, but he's getting us to this point of making sure we understand that there is exclusivity attached to Jesus as the light. Like he is the light and there is no other. Others may witness to it, but he is the light and there is no other. Maybe you've read the book, A Wrinkle in Time. I think it's a movie now. I rarely see the movies because it always seems to ruin the book. It might be a good movie. Um, but, but, uh, but there's a scene in that book where the children are, are, are uh, they're taken up into, they're searching for their father. They're taken up into the cosmos, like out into the universe. And they're seeing all these different planets. Um, and then they're being guided in this tour by Mrs. Whatsit and Mrs. Who. And these, these quirky guides, they're speaking to the kids about fighting off the dark thing or this dark shadow. They see it over other planets first. Uh, and it's this notion of evil in the, in the cosmos, the dark thing. So these guides, they're speaking to the children about a battle that exists throughout the cosmos. And they're, and they're talking to the kids about some of those who have fought against the darkness. All right. So, so then listen to this dialogue. Who have our fighters been, Calvin asked. In other words, who, who have planet Earth's fighters been against the darkness? Oh, you must know them, dear, Mrs. What's-It said. Mrs. Who's spectacles shone out at them triumphantly, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Jesus, Charles Wallace said. Why, of course, Jesus. Of course, Mrs. What's-It said. Go on, Charles, love. There were others. All your great artists, they've been lights for us to see by. Leonardo da Vinci, Calvin suggested tentatively, and Michelangelo and Shakespeare, Charles Wallace called out, and Bach. And Pasteur and Madame Curie and Einstein. Now Calvin's voice rang with confidence. And Schweitzer and Gandhi and Buddha and Beethoven and Rembrandt and St. Francis. All these lights by which, the gospel, by which the darkness is dispelled. And that's the temptation. To think there are many lights which can be victorious over the darkness. Of course, Rembrandt, you know, he, he reflects the general light of Christ in his art. Madame Curie and her chemistry. But none can ever occupy the same list as the person of Jesus Christ, not even John the Baptist. Because in Christ and in him alone is exclusive salvation, transformation, new creation, victory over the sin-torn, wicked, woeful darkness of this world. At the cross of Christ, Jesus defeated death, the final and greatest weapon of the darkness. And and at at the end 
uh, at the end of Jesus' victory, we discover that he's the one who's raised to new life. He's the one who promises life and darkness no longer poses its eternal threat. Jesus takes that penalty for us and, and wins alone, bringing us life. So, so, so while darkness surrounds us and darkness even abides in us, John wants to introduce us to the one who comes and doesn't just press back the darkness, doesn't just flicker a little light in there to give us some encouragement. Uh, but John's actually introducing us to the one who comes with a kind of recreation power to dispel the darkness ultimately and entirely, so much so that Jesus can speak of you and me as having eternal life right now as we believe in him, even though we will still walk through the darkness of death. We still will walk through it. Death's the final darkness, but it's a darkness that holds no ultimate power. So Paul, he speaks like this too. It's, it seems illogical to us at first until we understand the bigness of who Jesus is. Paul can say things like, oh, you're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm what? I'm, you're, you're as good as seated with Christ in the heavenlies because of what Jesus has done for you. We may face darkness, battle the darkness as we, as we seek to walk in deeds of light. The struggle is real, it's ongoing. But we have to understand that the darkness is lost because the battle's been won. And the light of life sourced in Christ alone prevails in the hearts of everyone who turns to him and believes. And so we just ask ourselves, we're going to have to ask ourselves this number of times through John's gospel, we just ask ourselves, am I believing in Jesus? Am I believing in Jesus as the exclusive rescuer from the shadow of darkness and death? There, there are lights. There are lights that have given us pictures of nice and wonderful things, but there is no light with recreation saving power apart from Jesus. So am I believing in Jesus? Are you believing in Jesus? No matter what we're facing, this means everything for us. So we can make Ambrose's prayer our prayer. What's helpful is, is, is just general honesty with the fact that, that, that he's dealing with things that life brings. So, Lord Jesus Christ, you are for me medicine when I'm sick. The darkness is sickness in our lives so oftentimes, isn't it? It brings us low. We feel the weight of it. We feel the pain of it. Lord Jesus, you're medicine for me when I'm sick. You're my strength when I need. You're life itself when I fear death. You are the way when I long for heaven. You are life when all is dark. Have things been dark for you lately? Uh, we can be renewed and looking to the one who is the light as we come to Christ and say, I need your light to shine in my heart. I need to be renewed by what's only found in you. There are no methods. There are no mechanisms. There are no potions. There's nothing, Lord Jesus. I just need you. I need you to shine in my heart and bring the brightness of your new life to bear on me as I stand here in great need. And he answers that prayer. He brings us the life and the light that we need. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Lord Jesus, we do pray that this would be the case. We confess that you're our light in the midst of darkness, that you're the victor over darkness. You're the one who ultimately brings us to a place of safety, so much so that even now we rest in the eternal assurance of, of new creation glory. We're thankful that we can rest in that hope even now and that you continue to transform us as we look forward to that day. We ask that your light would shine brightly in us. And we know as we look ahead that that's a light that's not to be contained, but a light that's to be displayed in a way that draws others to you as well. So we pray that we would be affected in such a way that your light in us would become a glowing witness to others about your power and your glory and your transformative kindness. We ask this in your name. Amen. <clears throat>